The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I was born in 1922, and then I had a father and a brother who believed strongly in technology, that the world was going to be remade. And I was an enthusiast for this, too, and I wrote one time that I expected uh, that by the time I was 30, that Popular Mechanics magazine would have a color photograph of God on its cover. <laughs> Science would have cornered God and, and got him to agree to oppose and, and to answer any questions they might still have. And uh, I was a great believer in truth, scientific truth, and then as I wrote once, then truth was dropped on Hiroshima. And uh, so I, I was hideously disillusioned, as that is when I lost my innocence, really, is when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Mm, that's author Kurt Vonnegut Jr. talking about his belief in science, losing his innocence, and cornering God. We'll be looking at Vonnegut's classic short story, Harrison Bergeron, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the show. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me. I'll be honest, I've been feeling a little down lately. I'm not sure Vonnegut is the cure for the blues, even though I love him. Maybe he is. Maybe he's the right author to read when you're feeling a little down. And Mike is here, so that's good. And you're here. Thank you for joining me. Truly, truly thank you. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate the audience for this thing. So, let's get straight to the content today. Mike Palindrome is going to stop by in a moment. We'll be setting up a story, and then you'll hear the story. It's another one of our self-contained History of Literature podcasts. You don't have to do any reading before. Everything you need is going to be right here, as long as your mind is engaged and your ears are alert. <laughs> so we're going to be setting up the story, then you'll hear the story. It's a very short story. It's about 15 minutes or so, I think. Then Mike and I will come back and give you some thoughts on why this story is good, how it fits into Vonnegut's other works, the amazing way Vonnegut's life intersects with his art, or maybe I should say how his life helped to develop his worldview. I give Mike a surprise quiz, which he, of course, bombs. <laughs> As always, he's the president of the Literature Supporters Club. I think I know I'm a member. I think I'm a vice president of that thing. Maybe I should stage a coup. I'm just kidding. He's a good president. Maybe my quizzes are too difficult. And anyway, we're off the track. We'll have some great Vonnegut quotes. He was an incredible person with really a a very particular point of view. He has some, some very funny sayings. And he has a kind of warm pessimism. Is that the... <laughs> that, <laughs> that phrase didn't sound quite right to me. Sounds as if he... Soiled his trousers. I mean, he is cynical. 
completely cynical, a guy who never trusts humans to get anything right. And at the same time, he's very kind and very warm. I identify with Vonnegut instinctively, maybe because he was a Midwesterner. I share his view somehow. Every single time I'm asked to pick a side, I go with the little guy. I think that's a Kurt Vonnegut thing as well. That's not always the case. For me, anyway, I remember being a kid in the America of Ronald Reagan, the Cold War America, and feeling the pull of that that urge toward victory. Reagan had that sunny side, and he had the rhetoric, the personality, and I remember marveling at the electoral map. I was, I was quite young. But seeing the way that map was all Reagan and thinking, yes, this is a winner. Rambo, Reagan, Mondale, you loser. (laughs) We are winners here in America. Well, I grew up and saw that life is a lot more complicated than that. Winning and losing is not always so clear cut. And and there can be something quite distasteful about winning, about triumphing, triumphing, triumphing in victory, and from a literary perspective, losing is so rich, and winning is not always that interesting or that fun. We live in our failures. I think it was Martin Amos who said that. We live in them. We dwell on them. We live in our failures. The downtrodden, the puny, the battler, the oppressed, the victims, the misunderstood, the strugglers. I like those people and count myself among them. The wild runaway success of this podcast notwithstanding. Vonnegut liked them too. I won't give too much of his life story here because I'll get into the details of that with Mike, everything that I think is important. But I'll tell you about his career. He was born in 1922 in Indianapolis, Indiana, to a family that had once been successful, once been wealthy. His father was an architect. His mother was the daughter of successful German brewers. The Depression took its toll on his family, however, and They lost their wealth. He went to Cornell University, but dropped out in 1943 to enlist in the Army, where he ended up fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. He was captured by the Germans, and he lived in Dresden as a prisoner of war. Dresden, quite famously, was heavily bombed during the war. He survived this by taking refuge in a meat locker at the slaughterhouse where he was being held. His first novel, Player Piano, was published in 1952, and over a 50-year career, he wrote a total of 14 novels, three short story collections, five plays, and five books of essays and other nonfiction. He was a very popular writer, known for his engaging style, his wit, his blending of genres, such as science fiction and literary fiction, his intelligence, and his general take on the world in books like Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five, he was perfectly positioned to become, as someone in his mid-40s who had come out of World War II, 
with a jaundiced view of the world. As he said at the beginning of our show here, he had lost his innocence during World War II. He came out of that as kind of a hero to the younger generation that was going through Vietnam. He was a best-selling author, and he gave speaking tours around the country. He became, by the end of his life, a revered figure. Writing in Time magazine, the critic Lev Grossman said in 2007, quote, Vonnegut's sincerity, his willingness to scoff at received wisdom, is such that reading his work for the first time gives one the sense that everything else is rank hypocrisy. His opinion of human nature was low, and that low opinion applied to his heroes and his villains alike. He was endlessly disappointed in humanity and in himself. And he expressed that disappointment in a mixture of tar-black humor and deep despair. He could easily have become a crank, but he was too smart. He could have become a cynic, but there was something tender in his nature that he could never quite suppress. He could have become a bore, but even at his most despairing, he had an endless willingness to entertain his readers with drawings, jokes, sex, bizarre plot twists, science fiction, whatever it took. End quote. We'll have Mike Palindrome on to discuss Vonnegut's 1961 short story, Harrison Bergeron, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike! Thanks for taking time away from your presidential duties and joining me here on the History of Literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. So since the last time you were here on the podcast, we met in person once again, this time in Manhattan in the neighborhood of Chelsea, the Peter McManus pub. We went old school. Yeah, that was fun. And we got to see the Mets, uh, Mets come back. <laughs> they eventually won. So. Yeah, the, uh, the barkeep was worried that you would jinx them. <laughs> you came in uh you came in raving about their their hot streak 
and he was convinced you were going to jinx them. I can't remember what you drank. I know I had a, a black and tan with Guinness and the house beer, which is what they recommended. It was very tasty. What did mm-hmm. you have? I had the Scottish Ale uh, Smithics. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's one of your old reliables. Yeah, I like that. And then you jumped on your bicycle and rode home, and I walked back to my hotel. It was a great night. Yeah, I love um, biking long distances. You know, I city bike. You can only bike up to 45 minutes. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, to prevent you from exercising with it. Hmm. So, but I've I've biked for about 44 minutes (laughs) from one end of Manhattan to the one tip the tip of the Manhattan to the other end. You can do that in 44 minutes? Roughly. Sounds good. Well, speaking of limitations, you're here to talk about Kurt Vonnegut and his story, Harrison Bergeron, which is all about limitations. Now, <laughs> I went, <laughs> I went, it's <laughs> a good segue. I went through a Vonnegut phase in college. I can't remember if you did. Did you read a bunch of Vonnegut in college? I did not. In fact, I did not read him in high school. I didn't read him in college. I, I read him, I think, when I was like 32 because I met a guy who uh, used to sign his name Kilgore Trout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that was his alias. I, I mean, I don't know where he used it, but. Right. So he was a big uh, Kurt Vonnegut fan. Sure. Yeah. So. And that inspired you to to pick one up at 32. How did it strike you? I loved it. I mean, I read Slaughterhouse-Five. I, I think I read it in, in a sitting. Yeah. I, I felt like it. it is very much, you know, a great thing to read in high school. Yes. The language is so easy. and Yeah. And the voice, the it's like a voice of a friend and it, a, a particularly cynical friend, which is perfectly suited, I think, for a teenager or a, maybe someone in their early 20s. I'm very grateful that I had that chance to read Vonnegut when I did and reminds me I should probably put a few of those on the Christmas list for my son as he's getting into peak Vonnegut age. So which Vonnegut did you read in addition to Slaughterhouse Five? You read Cat's Cradle? Yes. Cat's Cradle. Uh, I think I probably read four or five Vonnegut books in total. But I don't think I read any stories. I don't remember there being a collection of Vonnegut stories. At least I never ran across one. Yeah, I I never heard of the story until you suggested that we do it. Yeah, and I suggested it mainly because I kept seeing it pop up on different lists of greatest short stories of all time or the top 10 American short stories, that kind of thing. I think it is on a lot of high school syllabi, college syllabi. I think a lot of people read it. And this is maybe sort of the last thing we should talk about before we, I don't want to spoil the story until we hear it, but it seems like a story that invites interpretation. I think that's why it's probably on a lot of course syllabi, but I I would say the interpretation is not easy. It's a little hard to pin Vonnegut down on this one, which is, of course, what makes literature good literature. Uh, So we'll talk about that after the story, but what is there anything that you think listeners should know or be thinking about before we begin? You know, I jotted down that everyone considers Vonnegut to be so funny, and I, I think he is very funny, but uh, I would urge r- listeners, readers, to think about when there's an absence of satire or humor in his work mm. and the way he uses that. 
because um, you know you see any kind of comedian or um, a movie that's a comic film and yes there you definitely can overdo it right right so. there's a stretch where things get kind of serious and it it stands out in relief yeah and then, and then the other thing i was going to urge is something that uh high school teachers say all the time is which character do you like more which i find to be a, a really annoying question but for this story i thought it was a it was a great question yeah let's do that let's start with We'll listen to the story, and then we'll start with the question, uh, which character do we like more, or does this story have a hero? Maybe that's another way to put it. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so let's take a break. We'll uh, come back in a moment here. We'll hear the story, Harrison Bergeron, by Kurt Vonnegut Jr., and then Mike and I will be back to discuss the story and give some thoughts. Television. 
There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic, like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a real pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh, said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yep, said George. He tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, no better than anybody else would have been, anyway. They were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked so that no one, seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face, would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped. But he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two out of the eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. Sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. I'd think it would be really interesting hearing all the different sounds, said Hazel, a little envious. All the things they think up. Um, said George. Only, if I was Handicapper General, you know what I would do? said Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the Handicapper General, a woman named Diana Moon Clampers. If I was Diana Moon Clampers, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday, just chimes, kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Well, maybe make them real loud, said Hazel. I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else, said George. Who knows better than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Right, said George. He began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who was now in jail, about Harrison, but a 21-gun salute in his head stopped that. Boy, said Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on the rims of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor, were holding their temples. All of a sudden you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa so's you can rest your handicap bag on the pillows, honey bunch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag, which was padlocked around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little while, she said. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out said Hazel. If there was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls, just a few. Two years in prison and two thousand dollars fine for every ball I took out, said George. I don't call that a bargain. If you could just take a few out when you came home from work, 
said Hazel. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here. You just sit around. If I tried to get away with it, said George, then other people would get away with it, and pretty soon we'd be right back to the Dark Ages again, with everybody competing against everybody else. You wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it, said Hazel. There you are, said George, the minute people start cheating on laws. What do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. Reckon it'd fall all apart, said Hazel. What would, said George blankly. Society, said Hazel uncertainly. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about, since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to say, Ladies and gentlemen. He finally gave up, handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. That's all right. Hazel said of the announcer. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin. She must have been extraordinarily beautiful, because the mask she wore was hideous. And it was easy to see that she was the strongest and most graceful of all the dancers, for her handicapped bags were as big as those worn by two hundred pound men. And she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was a very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was a warm, luminous, timeless melody. Excuse me, she said, and she began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a grackle squawk, has just escaped from jail, where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He is a genius, and an athlete is under-handicapped and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever borne heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick, wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him wanging headaches besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people, but Harrison looked like a walking junkyard. In the race of life, Harrison carried 300 pounds. And to offset his good looks, the H.G. men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and cover his even white teeth 
with black caps at Snaggletooth Random. If you see this boy, said the ballerina, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was the shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Screams and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again, as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake, and well he might have, for many was the time his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, said George, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen. Clanking, clownish, and huge, Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the uprooted studio door was still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the emperor, cried Harrison. Do you hear? I am the emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. He stamped his foot, and the studio shook. Even as I stand here, he bellowed, crippled, hobbled, sickened, I am a greater ruler than any man who ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper, tore straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress, he said, looking down on the cowering people. Let the first woman who dares rise to her feet claim her mate and her throne. A moment passed, and then a ballerina arose swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? Music, he commanded. The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps, too. Play your best, he told them, and I'll make you barons and dukes and earls. The music began. It was normal at first, cheap, silly, false. But Harrison snatched two musicians from their chairs, waved them like batons as he sang the music as he wanted it played. He slammed them back into their chairs. The music began again and was much improved. Harrison and his empress merely listened to the music for a while, listened gravely, as though synchronizing their heartbeats with it. They shifted their weights to their toes. Harrison placed his big hands on the girl's tiny waist, letting her sense the weightlessness that would soon be hers. And then, in an explosion of joy and grace, 
Into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was thirty feet high, but each leap brought the dancers nearer to it. It became their obvious intention to kiss the ceiling. They kissed it. And then, neutraling gravity with love and pure will, they remained suspended in air, inches below the ceiling, and they kissed each other for a long, long time. It was then that Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general, came into the studio with a double-barreled ten-gauge shotgun. She fired twice, and the emperor and the empress were dead before they hit the floor. Diana Moon Glampers loaded the gun again. She aimed it at the musicians and told them they had ten seconds to get their handicaps back on. It was then that the Bergeron's television tube burned out. Hazel turned to comment about the blackout to George, but George had gone out into the kitchen for a can of beer. George came back in with the beer, paused while a handicap signal shook him up, and then he sat down again. You've been crying, he said to Hazel. Yup, she said. What about? he said. I forget, she said. Something real sad on television. What was it? he said. It's all kind of mixed up in my mind, said Hazel. Forget sad things, said George. I always do, said Hazel. That's my girl, said George. He winced. There was the sound of a riveting gun in his head. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy, said Hazel. You can say that again, said George. Gee, said Hazel, I could tell that one was a doozy. Okay, we're back. So, Mike, what do you think? Does this story have a hero? Um, the handicapper general. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should go through the villains, right? Uh -huh. uh, the villains are everywhere. I'm not sure the story has a hero, although I do have a candidate for a hero, which I'll propose. But let's talk about the villains first. I think there's at least three, maybe five villains. So <laughs> the, the handicapper general, Diana Moon Glampers, is uh, a, what a name. A I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Vonnegut, he's one of those writers. He always seems to be having fun when he's writing. He seems to have great gusto. Actually, let me start with a quote. I've got a, a few quotes here, a bunch of quotes by Vonnegut and, and also a handful by some other critics. And let's see. Here's a quote about his energy and his voice and his style. Mm -hmm. This is by someone named Gavin Extance, who was mm -hmm. writing online in 2013. And he says, I've heard the Vonnegut voice described as manic depressive. 
And there's certainly something to this. It has an incredible amount of energy married to a very deep and dark sense of despair. It's frequently over-the-top and scathingly satirical, but it never strays too far from pathos, from an immense sympathy for societies vulnerable, oppressed, and powerless. But then it also contains a huge allotment of warmth. Most mm. of the time, reading Kurt Vonnegut feels more like being spoken to by a very close friend. There's an inclusiveness to his writing that draws you in, and his narrative voice is seldom absent from the story for any length of time. Usually, it's right there in the foreground, direct, involving, and extremely idiosyncratic. I thought it was a great summary of Vonnegut and the way his particular voice is like a friend. He's, he's like a friend telling you a good story. It just grabs you right from the start with the with Hazel. Even before we meet Hazel, the, that first paragraph uh, yeah. about them being equal. Yep. I mean, and what a great line. The year was 2081 and everybody was finally equal. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, he quickly dispenses with the idea that we say, oh, well, isn't everyone equal today? We... We pass laws that says everyone is equal, or I go to church and, and everyone is equal. They say, no, that's that's just the start of it. We're talking equal every which way. Yeah. <laughs> and he kind of, he, he ascribes it to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution. And you think that's exactly what would happen. You know, you try to do part of it in the 211th, and then you realize what you left out, so you have to... You have to amend it again, and then you have to amend it again. And after three, you finally kind of lock it down what you're trying to get done here. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that quote about the sympathy, I, I went back and forth thinking that there was sympathy, and then there was just, um, I, I can't help it, maybe that's just me, but th there's a strain of elitism. Hmm. That, that, that I don't... I don't know. You have to, you know, figure it out entirely, the inter interpretation-wise, but it's there. You mean elitism saying? So let me tick through my villains here. Mm -hmm. Diana Moon Glampers, obviously, kind of a villain. She's a torturer and a murderer. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a dystopia, I think, and she's kind of the the face of the dystopia. It's an interesting question, though. Do you think she's average or do you think she's sort of big brother and uh do you think these people the agents of the handicapper general are above average you know are they sitting outside of this regime i think they're definitely smarter than hazel yeah they're um, smarter than hazel and they have at least the knowledge of yeah. the omniscience of knowing exactly when something is going wrong in my personal experiences with people who are kind of leaders or in positions where they are in charge, it seems like intelligence is only, you know, important, relevant up to a point. Hmm. After that, any kind of additional intelligence can kind of hamper you because I find that, you know, no one relates to that kind of intelligence. So I, I thought the Handicapper General was a little bit like... um. Like like a like a charming CEO. I mean, not necessarily smart, that that smart, but you know, smart enough. Yeah, and when I think about it, clearly she's outside the regime. She's above it because Vonnegut isn't exactly clear on this. He sets out that they have physical 
handicaps and also that are artificial and also these artificially imposed intellectual handicaps. But a lot of the things that strike George have more to do with his emotions or his feelings. Right. When he starts feeling sad that he's missing his son, I guess you could say that's about to lead him into an insight or a revelation. But it almost seems like those things are being controlled as well. But Diana Moon Glampers obviously doesn't have that kind of a handicap built in, or she wouldn't be able to show up and, and shoot people out of the sky. She would be limited from having those sorts of strong feelings. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't think she was um, as she wasn't smarter than Harrison, but she was just smart enough to have, and she was probably not smarter than Harrison's dad, hmm. but she was just smart enough to that with the combination of that just smart enough level plus a lot of power. She was able to impose um, this kind of like shitty world. And so Uh, I I wrote that, you know, this story calls to mind, like what kind of governmental system is the story, you know, about. Right. And it doesn't, it just seem like for someone like Vonnegut, he would probably ascribe a lot of that exact dynamic to politicians that they're they're not the smartest but yeah. they're just smart enough to keep everybody else down yeah i mean i remember when al gore was running they said he's too smart to be a politician because yeah most people that smart um decide not to go into politics that there's like a self weeding there's a self-selection when yeah. it comes to politicians because people are like why don't we have a charismatic intelligent politician it's like because those people you know decide to do something better with their lives yeah i think that all the time i i work with people and i just look around in room i'll be in a conference room or something and there'll be 20 people in the room and i'll think i would take any one of these 20 people to be my representative or my senator beyond or my governor or whatever let alone president you know that they just the people who are balanced and stable and have things together, they're not the people we put in charge, generally. Right. With exceptions. Okay, so I was ticking through my list of villains, mm-hmm. and I think where you were headed with this is that George and Hazel, for being, I guess you could call them sheep-like or unengaged followers. I mean, somebody voted for this regime— uh, it wasn't, you know, it was installed by amendment to the Constitution. It seems like it was democratically chosen and, and people are going along with it. George specifically kind of justifies it to Hazel and they both agree that it's a better system, even though they've lost their son. They're kind of villainous as well. Oh, really? I I mean, <laughs> Hazel maybe, but... <laughs> For but being... and then... There, there were moments when I thought of Hazel as as uh, a collaborator, but then other times thinking, you know, she would go with the flow. If there was a better government, she would go with it too. So Yeah, they both would kind of follow laws. That's another thing that Vonnegut puts in there, that they they agree that once the laws are passed, you have to follow the laws. But this is where I thought uh, you were headed when you were saying that Vonnegut, there's a a touch of elitism here, and it almost seems like Vonnegut is not 
making these people into heroes. There's something other. There's there's sort of the maybe the dumb masses who allow this mm-hmm. kind of thing to happen. I, I I didn't think that they were necessarily. I, I I like the ambiguity that it's not clear whether there was a coup, hmm. a military coup, or some power grab, or if there was like a, a normal election. <laughs> And, you know, this cockamamie government was elected because, as you know, as what we're seeing in this country today. (laughs) Okay, so let's go to the next character to consider on the list. Harrison, do you see him as a hero or something else? Well, it's interesting because he is a hero until he actually shows up. (laughs) Exactly. And then he starts (laughs) dancing and showing off and. And he I mean, declares himself speech, the emperor. Yeah, his speech is awful. I mean, it's just like an, kind of an inarticulate speech. And just, <laughs> I mean, so you, you sort of like, I guess you sort of cheer for him out of, I mean, this is very much about politics too. You know, he's the, the lesser of two evils, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the story is set up so you're you're ready to cheer for him and you want someone to be free. You want him to be unshackled from all of the weights and everything that are dangling from him. But you're right. When he starts talking, you just think, well, this isn't really going to lead to anything better. So what if this guy declares himself emperor because he's yeah. seven feet tall and intelligent and you know what is that other than a potential dictatorship you know i mean you still are cheering for him and i i love the dance scene where he's there's a line (laughs) where he says um it it became clear that they were trying to kiss the ceiling they kissed the ceiling yeah (laughs) i I just think that's just yeah and that's that's an example of bonnegut's uh he has such a great sense of rhythm yeah like here's a Here's another, here's a quote that that reminds me of. He said, uh, quote, the universe is a big place, perhaps the biggest. (laughs) 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 Let me give a couple other uh, funny ones that he's got. He can be really wise. He can be funny. He can be inspiring. Uh, He said, those who believe in telekinetics, raise my hand. (laughs) (laughs) and here's one that's very applicable to harrison bergeron true terror is to wake up one morning and discover that your high school class is running the country (laughs) you know vonnegut said at one point he said i don't think there are republicans or democrats i think america has winners and losers and he always identified on the side with losers but i sort of I kind mm-hmm. of see that in this story, Harrison Bergeron. I, I see him basically mm-hmm. saying human nature being what it is, things are going to be a mess no matter what. Just think about what would humans would be likely to do if they were trying to take equality too far. They would completely bungle it and end up with this nightmare society. And yeah. then if somebody came along and tried to fix it, human nature being what it is, he would be no better and he would end up in this, you know, the the forces would be out to get him. And in the end, it's the common people, it's the Georges and Hazels who end up living this uh, horrendous life that they never asked for and, and was imposed upon them. And it's just full of misery and suffering. It, the story is full of these um, legal 
you know, letter of the law moments. Mm-hmm. When when you say equal, you know, you can have equal but really stupid. To me, the flip side of one one of the flip sides of equal is uh, conformity, mm-hmm. and you know, this idea that you know your neighbor should not be getting anything that you don't have. Right. Yeah, equality is a, is a, is a it can easily kind of end up in a kind of fascism or or conformity if if the people who determine what's equal and so again yeah back to the letter of the law like you know we have these moments in the story where there there are these determinations of what x means and the handicapper general says this means x mm-hmm. so I, I i i love those that I don't think he he figures it all out, but it's there and you can feel it that there's abuse of language. Yeah. When you say you don't think he, he doesn't figure it all out, who did you mean? Vonnegut? Like Vonnegut. Yeah. 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 I, don't, I, I mean, I don't think he's saying like, you know, conformity, that, that like the media is this perfect way to control people. Right. Or that conformity is necessarily terrible, but we can all agree that having a 60 pound sack of bird shot is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are these moments where you're like, okay, wait, common sense dictates this, but you know, what are civil rights? There's common sense civil rights, but then there's civil rights about like loitering and noise and who determines that. And it's like, you know, and so there, I, I found that, you know, the story is so much about communities either agreeing on what's law or one powerful, charming person in a community telling everybody this is the law, you know? Yeah, it's so dark. And it it all sort of curls back into this darkness. When you try to analyze the story, you end up just thinking it's just full of despair, no matter what. Well, here's another quote. This was uh, by Vonnegut. He wrote this poem. It was called Requiem Ending. And mm-hmm. it says, When the last living thing has died on account of us, how poetical it would be if earth could say, in a voice floating up, perhaps from the floor of the Grand Canyon, it is done. People did not like it here. <laughs> <laughs> It's a yeah, very uh yeah, I wrote in my notes that it's it's a utopian story, but it's also an a, a, a story of apocalypse. Yeah. Oh. This is a another quote of his which I really like. Uh and it shows how warm he still is even in spite of that. He doesn't seem angry. He seems to want to connect. I had kind of I'll give this away now. I kind of thought the the one hero I could find in this story is Vonnegut because his voice and his narration of this mm-hmm. and his decision to make all of it bleak and to not give a happy ending and to not, not just to not give a happy ending, but to not give an easy answer. Yeah. Uh, I felt like in doing so, he made himself kind of this prophet or someone that you trust, someone, especially if you're in a particular frame of mind and things seem very bleak. You can look to Vonnegut and think, here's somebody who gets it. Here's somebody who gets how messed up this world is. I think that was why he was so popular during the Vietnam War. He became like a 
uh, a countercultural figure. Here's the quote I was trying to get to. He says, quote, Hello, babies. Welcome to Earth. It's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. It's round and wet and crowded. On the outside, babies, you've got a hundred years here. There's only one rule that I know of, babies. God damn it, you've got to be kind. <laughs> in spite of everything, he talks about, he likes the, the Sermon on the Mount. I think at one point he said that he he's not a Christian or Jewish or Buddhist. He doesn't have any conventional religion in, instinct inside him. All he is is a humanist, which means that he doesn't believe in rewards or punishments after he's dead. But he thought, if it weren't for the message of mercy and pity in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. <laughs> I've learned more about his life than I had known before. Do you know much about his biography? I mean, he was in Dresden during the the bombings, right? I mean, yeah. He, he suffered post-traumatic, well, I mean, back then they didn't call it that, but he suffered trauma Yeah, uh, in the war. So I, I really, as I was going through his biography, I was jotting down all of these different contradictions and all of these different uh -huh. uh, tensions between one thing and another. And it made me think that a lot of his life probably fed into this worldview of Everything was kind of upside down for him and, and not knowing exactly what was right and what was wrong and what was good and what was bad, but seeing mm -hmm. everything through kind of a slanted prism. His family was wealthy and his mm -hmm. older siblings went to these fancy private schools. But by the time he went to school, uh, the depression had hit. And so even though his family had fallen on hard times and he had to go to public school but his mother felt a great sense of disappointment and shame that he that they were no longer living according to their station. And even though Vonnegut liked his school, he knew that his mother didn't like it. And so it's things like this where he had, you know, they they lived like they were wealthy, but they didn't actually have wealth. And even though he was happy, people around him weren't happy. And his father was a successful businessman, but then he wasn't a successful businessman. His mother started to write stories to try to make more money. She never sold any stories, but then he found writing to be very easy. And so everything is, you know, kind of this, like, is writing a good thing or not? It made his mother miserable, but it was something that, that he was obviously very good at. And mm -hmm. But the, the biggest thing happened when he was in college. He was sort of a pacifist or he had Pacific tendencies, and World War II breaks out, he goes to enlist, and mm -hmm. then they send him home on leave, and it's uh, Mother's Day. He was going home for the weekend for Mother's Day. He arrives mm -hmm. at home and finds out that his mother has committed suicide the night before. Oh, I, I think I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, within... It's terrible. yeah. So then he goes back, he has to go back to the the military for service, and I'm sure he's still processing that. Three months later, he's sent to Germany. He ends up fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. He's taken a mm -hmm. uh, prisoner of war, and while he's on the prisoner of war train, the mm -hmm. train is bombed by the Royal Air Force. Mm -hmm. If you were on the train 
as a prisoner of war and you're being bombed by the Allies, what are you supposed to be rooting for at that point? Do you want you'd want them to miss, right? You'd want to you don't want them to successfully hit their target, but you know that for the greater good of the war, you want them to to be successful in what they're bombing, but at the same time, you'd be hoping... And then the same thing happened when he went to Dresden. You know, here he's in Dresden, and he called it a city that the Germans never expected to be bombed because it, it didn't have much strategic value. I think his quote was, they made... Uh, he worked in a factory that made malt syrup for pregnant women. And mm-hmm. I think I think his quote was in Dresden, they made... Um, cigarette factory. It was cigarette. They made cigarettes and clarinet factories. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, it was the most sophisticated city he had ever been in. And then he sees it bombed, you know, and, and again, part of him had to know, well, this is a good thing. If we're, you know, destroying Germany, it, it will end the war, and I hope the Allies get what they want. But at the same time, he's seeing the rubble of this city being probably overbombed and seeing people die, and he himself is in the position of vulnerability. And you can see where someone would go through all of that just a few months after their mother has committed suicide because of what the Great Depression has done and the the toll that it took on his family. And you could see where someone would come out of that just thinking, boy, it is really hard to be just an average human being living on this planet and to to try to figure out if there's any good in the world, if God is, exists, if there's anyone looking out for me, and and how the forces of the 20th century just moved these these people around like pawns on a chessboard. I think it makes his work um, more interesting because there is no, you know, I guess the whole thing with like, you know, Emil Zola and, and um, his, his very clear dogmatic uh, mm. take on socialism. I mean, when, when you, when you see dogma in literature, it's, it's, it, it really takes detracts from, from my story. And so. Right. You know, that's that's the nice thing about, you know, Harrison Bergeron. I read one critic, I think it was a biographer of Vonnegut, who ended up saying that his view was that Harrison, Harrison Bergeron must be a satire mm-hmm. of what people in America thought life in the Soviet Union would be like. <laughs> so it was sort of, you know, it's, it's full of layers. It's not... It's not saying that equality is a bad goal necessarily, it's, but it's also not saying that America is great because it doesn't yeah. do the kinds of things in here. Like it, it almost suggests that America is too competitive and there probably is a call for uh, measures to increase equality. And it's a complicated story. I found the, the characters to be incredibly American. Yeah. And not at all Russian or communist. Yeah. Like Hazel saying to him, why don't you rest your head? That that sack must be really heavy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That just, to me, that seems very American. <laughs> that doesn't seem at all to be like, you know, we live in a horrible society. We, 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 not a horrible society, but we live in a society where, 
you know, the government tells us exactly what to do, which is, you know, what communism was. Or the, uh, what was the phrase where, where she says, see, I could be a good handicapper general. And he says, as good as anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> by definition. <laughs> you know, I, I love the way the story, you, you, you think, what's he going to do with this? Because the setup is immediate. And then with the this the transmitter going off in his head and hazel being a you know just average intelligence and you just wonder well what what could he do with this yeah <laughs> and then the sun being on tv is just so over the top I mean, it's perfect yeah and yeah. I, at that moment i really thought about the way um this is written in 61 there were a lot of um cultural warnings against television that it was going to just like kill mm. society just yeah. dead turn people into robots and right which is funny because there people are saying the same thing still today and i i find myself sometimes saying it too i mean but it, it still hasn't happened like people if anything it's made people more resistant mm. and more passionate about the things that they care about yeah. Because you have this default of watching TV. And even, I find that even people who love watching bad TV, they sort of know that it's bad. Yeah. And there's, I had this parenting discussion with someone recently, and she was a little bit upset that her daughter can't sit through a movie. You know, yeah. she can't watch something for two hours because she's so used to doing Minecraft and doing all these other right. things where she's interacting. She has a voice. She has some agency while she's doing it. And, and it kind of makes being able to sit in a room with your family watching television together, it kind, yeah. of, it kind of seems like the good old days. You see, the, the way to do it, if you want to talk about conditioning citizens and some five-year program the way i did it with my daughter is we never let her watch tv unless it was in french mm. and so she <laughs> was just so happy to watch any kind of crap yeah. that she tolerated that it was in <laughs> french and had to she had to learn french and then when we started showing our movies we try not to overdo it but we did bad mouth certain movies and then we would show her you know, things that we thought were good, like, um, and dated or from the seventies or eighties, like young Frankenstein or Casablanca Yeah. to get her. I mean, it was very deliberate to get her into the, to see the rhythm and the pacing mm. of, of films. Because I mean, we watched this, that owl movie about rival owls that fight guardians of goal. Mm. I don't know if you saw that. No. The guy who directed it, made the film about the Spartans 300. Oh, right. I mean, I enjoyed it, but the pacing of that left me, I, I could barely remember what had happened in the previous scene. Yeah. I mean, there was just explosions all in your face, screaming. The dialogue was like all screaming. <laughs> and I just felt like, I know I'm getting old, but I think on aesthetic grounds. Yeah. This is shameless. <laughs> this is like, I mean, I challenge a director, uh, uh, you know, to, to really think about like 
see the pacing of like a film like Casablanca. Yeah. I mean, that's enough of my ageist rant, but... Well, (laughs) speaking of the generations here, uh, you mentioned that you had some family members who read the story as well. Were there any interesting takes out of... I guess you had three generations of people who were reading it, right? Yeah. Well, my daughter, who's 13, um, was really taken by Hazel. Mm. I think she, she felt like Hazel was in a weird way kind of the center of the story and made me yeah. rethink the way I, th- I thought of Hazel. Yeah. Um, and leave it to a kid to, to see the potential of somebody who's like, you know, limited, but has their heart in the right place. And Yeah. And, and has no handicaps. Like she's the perfect yeah. medium. Uh, the you know the the golden mean, and yeah. that's who we would all be in this society. Whether we were below her or above her, we would wind up being her. Yeah, and and she was just I think putting herself in the shoes of the of uh, the father the father George, and just found it just horrifying the idea of this thing going off in your ear. Yeah. Yeah, it I mean, must be able she to took read very, your thoughts. Yeah, she took it very seriously, the idea of this thing going off in your ear. Right. So, not but, as opposed to just as a plot device or Yeah, or yeah. like it's I mean it's pretty funny, but then hmm. um there's this moment where Hazel goes, "What well what's it like? It must be nice to hear a different sound each time." Yeah, and she's on a little Sundays, of it. Yeah. yeah, she's like, "On Sundays, I wish they played chimes because of religion." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Boy, right. that you know that I don't know that, that that is a little childlike. That that's the way a child thinks." You know? Yeah, that was a great insight for yeah. for Vonnegut that the person who doesn't have a handicap would sort of suggest well aren't you lucky aren't you special (laughs) oh look at smarty pants over here he gets to hear all these interesting things that the handicapper general has chosen just for him (laughs) (laughs) oh man okay so before we wrap up here there was something i wanted to uh quiz you on Mm -hmm. surprise quiz so I looked up some academic articles. There are several academic articles about uh, the story, Harrison Bergeron, and I wanted to see if you could guess which of these three is the real academic article and which two are two that I made up. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to give you the, the uh, going to read you three titles. Uh-huh. They all have parentheses. They all have, <laughs> they all have the same thing. They all have the same format, which is, you know, they have a, a phrase and then a colon and then a, de- a more descriptive phrase after that. Oh, uh, yeah, the classic dissertation the titles. Classic dissertation titles. And title. with alliteration. I love the alliteration. It's <laughs> yeah. like it's like garbage and geosphere, colon. <laughs> you know, where do we put our things in life in three different eras or something? It's just yeah. like so nonsensical. The, exactly. The, and the then, combination. The, the other thing that yeah. all three have is a parenthetical that, that gives a little pun or a little twist. Okay. So, title one. Handicapping Equality and Excellence. And handicapping is parentheses H-A-N-D-I hyphen 
close uh-huh. parentheses. So handicapping equality and excellence, colon, the unconstitutionality of spending caps in public education. Okay. Number two, the emperor has parentheses too many and parentheses close, colon, dystopic fiction and the politics of deviance. Okay. Number three, video killed the parentheses reality, close parentheses, star, colon, reconsidering the antihero in the post-reality era. Well, I, th- I feel like the, the second one is definitely an academic article. <laughs> that is one that I made up. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's perfect. <laughs> People are going to accuse uh, accuse me of uh, like in quiz show dive taking a dive. <laughs> You're paying me money to do it. <laughs> wow. So the yeah, I guess uh, it just it just rang like propaganda, and I bought it. <laughs> Actually, the real one was the first one: handicapping equality and excellence. Oh my god, I was gonna say that one spending caps in public. Education. I was gonna say that one was fake. <laughs> so <laughs> there were so many caps. I yeah. just felt like that was fake. But so that, no, that was the real one. So the other two are available if anyone is out there wanting to write a dissertation. You have the sometimes the title is half the battle. Once you have the title, you know what to write about. I'm checking my notes here. I had a few other quotes, but I think we've sort of covered all the ground. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I, I love the way they have the use the ballerinas just because we didn't talk about that. Because, oh, yeah, the ballerinas. They, I think that everything in uh, so much in the story is ugly. And, yep. you know, when you talk about equality, one of the things that is become so important and uh, you know in the forefront today is uh beauty and your appearance mm-hmm. and so the ballerinas being made to wear masks and way down so they can't do something that's artistic and you know just aesthetically beautiful right i think there was that there was a moment when i was as I was reading the ballerinas, that he whether he could have made a novel out of this. Yeah, well, you know, he did have a novel that had an element like this with a key difference. So he had a an earlier novel, mm-hmm. not one of his more famous ones, but uh, is it the Sirens of Titan? I think. Huh. Let me get the exact title here, since is the history of literature, the Sirens of Titan, nineteen fifty nine novel, and. There's a society in which handicaps are used to make all people equal, eradicating the supposedly ruinous effects of blind luck on human society. But mm-hmm. the difference is all the handicaps are are undertaken voluntarily, but they're only physical handicaps. Mm. There are no handicaps for above average intelligence. They would change their appearance through the bags of lead shot hung from various parts of the body and they wear frumpish clothes and and use cosmetics to disfigure themselves. They do it in order to, uh, it's an act of faith towards the church of God, the utterly indifferent. <laughs> um, but, you know, I kind of wondered, we haven't really talked about the Cold War too much. We touched on it a bit, but 
it also kind of reminded me more of Mao's China and everyone wearing the same colored suit and and kind mm. of the enforced equality of you know lack of ostentatiousness or or really any sort of individuality that might come with a, a society that's trying to reduce class differences or otherwise hinder any kind of artistic achievement or you know they had the cultural revolution i guess this was probably before the cultural revolution but the idea that well professors aren't as good as peasants and we should try to eliminate all forms of knowledge and kind of smooth out the playing field hey you know the the, the mouth thing the it's funny because that kind of uh garment is now come back in fashion i don't know if you know this but mm. there's a whole th- the w- concept of a work wear yeah uh, where people are wearing like blue factory jackets and yeah so but i i did think that the you know like i was saying about the ballerinas that everything in the so much in the story is ugly mm. <laughs> so, yeah i also wanted to add my one of my probably my favorite moment is when and this is such a imaginative touch by vonnegut is um when they announced that Harrison's escaped. It says, a police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then sideways, upside down again, and then right side up. (laughs) And, I, you know, obviously it's done to show that the guy is, you know, kind of incompetent and average, but um, my wife is suggesting that perhaps he had done it on purpose. Hmm because average people didn't want to feel like, well, here was somebody who could do it instantly and put it right side up. Oh. Which I yeah. thought was like a pretty interesting, you know, layering of yeah, uh, the way maybe the elite would kind of try to control average people. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. is interesting because it's, it is yeah. a detail. It's a throwaway detail. And I just thought it was Vonnegut saying, of course, nothing ever goes according to plan, even for the the mighty. Uh, But the idea that they did that intentionally to uh, to kind of show more flaws than they actually had is really interesting. And and it made me realize that sometimes I mean, not to toot my own horn too much, but I, I, I do that sometimes with my emails that. I, I deliberately make my emails kind of average mm. so that the other person responds very quickly and doesn't feel any pressure to write me a nice email. Right. You're like putting... if I write, if my email is too descriptive or <laughs> perhaps like too funny, they may feel like some undue pressure to write me a better email <laughs> than they're able to do at that moment. Whereas if I write an email with typos and then I'm asking kind of silly things, but I just want a direct answer, they respond right. immediately. They're just like, well, well, um, you know, well, Mike's I can, email is pretty, pretty bad. I can match this. I can certainly write something like back with whatever you're look, looking for. So. Right. Incredibly generous of you toward your, your, fellow email recipients. No, no, my <laughs> friends know what I'm doing. When they see these typos where I, I say like, well, are you going to bring the book that you borrowed from me two years ago back to me or not? 
yeah, if you had, you know, if you had great descriptive prose and flowery language and yeah. incredible vocabulary and perfect grammar in a in an email like that, yeah. they, they might just they might want to return the book, but just think, how can I ever match the rhetoric in this email Mike just sent me? I'm just gonna have to sit here with the book that I owe him. Yeah, or they they just may not respond <laughs> for a week. Yeah, exactly. Dumbfounded by yeah. by the email that came in. <laughs> <laughs> Mustn't try too hard. That's the that's the motto of the story. That's the motto of the story. Yeah, mm. and here you've been living it all this time. <laughs> you're you're you are Harrison Bergeron. You've you've been hanging these these bags of lead yeah. shot from your. I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's leave things there. Mike, thanks again for joining me on the History of Literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike, as always, for joining me. You can find Mike on Twitter at LiteratureSC. Or find the History of Literature podcast at The Jack Wilson. That's J-A-C-K-E Wilson. Now, let's all run out and read some Vonnegut. If it's been a while for you, or if you've never had the pleasure... We'll be back next week with a celebrity who's joining us, hopefully. How's that for a tease? In the meantime, try to be the best version of yourself you can be, and don't let your internal voice become a handicapper general. If you feel like you can kiss the ceiling, go ahead and rise up there and kiss it if you can. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.